Hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analyst, the only podcast that thinks Sheriff Tiraspol should be in the Super League. My name is Cameron McDonald, and I spent three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host Rupert Meadows has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport Radio and Give Me Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. And between the special Zavi episode and our table predictions, it's actually been two weeks since we last had a look at some of the Premier League games going on. As always, timestamps are in the description, and let's jump right in with the North London derby this past Sunday. Uh, yeah, and where better place to start uh, for us than the North London derby? Because this time two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, you know, everyone Spurs was saying were on that top. Yeah, Spurs they were, were on fire. They were looking great. They were controlling games. They weren't looking panicky. And who needed Harry Kane? And who needed Harry Kane? And Arsenal, conversely, were you know all all stuff was going down. Whibbly the club wobbly. was on fire. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, over the last two, maybe three weeks, that narrative has really flipped not that you know Spurs are suddenly getting relegation jokes made about them or Arsenal are suddenly looking like oh is this the next big thing but the two teams fortunes and certainly their places in the table has switched around Um, and it's definitely really interesting because you look at these two teams and the big criticism of you know the two managers or or the criticism of one manager that wasn't every the other was that Nuno had more experience so he was more prepared to weather it but if you were looking at just that game and there's been a lot of games to suggest otherwise for Arsenal and even for Spurs under Nuno those first three games notably you know you would have thought just looking at that game that Nuno was the one who'd only been in the Premier League for five minutes because he was completely tactically outclassed he very much was um, and you're right that it has has been very much a reversal of fortunes for, for Spurs and Arsenal and you know, credit to Arsenal where it's due. I mean, they they just were a lot more economical with their possession. They took their chances really well. They stifled Spurs at times. Spurs looks all over the place. And I think, like with all games where one team just looks completely off the boil, you have to criticise one team and then also praise the other. So, I, I, you know, I think they did a really good job of keeping Spurs at bay. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have sort of tried to sort of say that this was just Arsenal playing well because Spurs were playing poorly or, you know, just Spurs looking poor, depending on which side of the aisle, you know, aisle of bias you decide to not yeah, play. Sure. The, the truth is definitely a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, for Arsenal fans, what a treat that would have been, that first goal by Smith-Rowe being set up by Bukayo Saka, you know, two, uh, two hairland graduates Nice combined. made home game, yeah. Yeah, absolutely fantastic for them. And, and, you know, great to see Saka score as well, get a goal and assist, a player that, you know, for all England fans, you want to see him get a win, or for, for most England fans, at least. Um, so just doing really well there. And, and it's interesting now to look at these two teams because, you know, they're, they're, their form really has reversed. I mean, not three weeks ago, we were looking at an Arsenal that had lost 5-0 to Manchester City and Spurs had beaten them 1-0. And we were thinking, good God, this is if Man City is sort of the, the weather vane here, Spurs are able to put in a controlled 1-0 victory against them, whereas Arsenal yeah. are getting destroyed. Exactly. And, and now you look at the results that have happened since and it's sort of, you know, your Spurs that have been leading to Crystal Palace 3-0. And all of a sudden, that opening game of the season, 2-0 loss to Brentford for Arsenal... It's still looking bad, but it's not looking as bad as it was on the day, given how Brentford have been doing so far. Yeah, well, um, we'll talk about Brentford in a little bit, but let's stick with Spurs and Arsenal at the moment. Obviously, you know, Spurs have conceded nine goals in the last three games, all two London opponents. And we do kind of talk about, you know, um, derbies happening in a vacuum. But with the form that they had going into these three games, they will be so disappointed with you know the, the results that they've had and... It just looks like they've completely lost their rudder, you know, and weirdly, kind of coinciding with Harry Kane coming back into the team 
and doing a really bad job of leading a line. I mean, the the funny thing about, you know, as football fans, we are all obliged to be absolutely reactionaries. And you'll see this no more than on some of the Spurs fan communities. It's in our contracts, right? It, it absolutely fans, is. Yeah. And I've been looking at some of the Spurs online communities and already some of them are saying like, you know, well, I, I just can't be bothered with it. Let's let's just sack Nuno already. I don't see any, any positive. Whereas three weeks ago, they were going, oh, this guy, you know, he's, he's a really measured... I don't think either was the correct response, but I, I do think that, you know, although derbies do happen in a vacuum, when you have enough of these results, it can start to generally hurt the morale of the squad. And morale is something they don't have in a lot of supply at the moment. Um, you know, Harry Kane, as you mentioned, is not looking his best. What I would say about that, though, again, is that you know, for years there was a whole thing about Harry Kane doesn't score in August. For a long time, it was a, it was a thing where Harry Kane just didn't score at the start of the season, and he threw that That's off true. last season. He's had a really really good start to the season, but I don't think that was true of any other season he's had to play him off Spurs. I might be wrong. Maybe he did it the season before last as well. But oh, so you think that because he missed August, it's now kind of transferred on to September, and he's had a really bad September instead. What sort in a sense, yeah, because I think that he is maybe someone who takes a little bit of time to get into it. I don't think that would have been helped at all by having a pretty truncated pre-season, you know, uh, because, you know, <laughs> he wasn't missing training. He was just on holiday. Oh, of course, yeah, everyone knows that. So so I just think that it's not a surprise that a player who has, you know, past history and taken a while to get into the season, added to which he didn't have a full pre-season, added to which that he also, like the rest of the England squad, we saw a lot of other England players. Um, I think the only exception really is like Jack Grealish, but a lot of England players have taken a bit of time to get into the season and are only now really getting into it. That's true. Harry Kane is sort of like three weeks behind the curve in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true in a sense. I guess you kind of sometimes think that it's just because maybe England fans haven't had as much time to relax and Harry Kane, in theory, has because he wasn't skipping training, as we said. Um, but, yeah, it's a weird one. I mean, as you say, kind of momentum changes everything and fans are reactionary, but it's weird that now... you Obviously, as, as Spurs were going into this game against Palace, you know, you just kind of thought they were going to steamroll them despite Palace's flashes of brilliance. And then now, after these three games, you're looking at Spurs' fixtures. They're playing Aston Villa, and I just don't know if they've got it in them. And then even after that, they've got Newcastle away. And again, like just the, my faith in them to get points from these games is completely gone. Um, and it's funny because it felt like they, they had such a strong start to the season, not just because they were winning games without Kane, but because just everything looked like it was going in the right direction. It almost looked like they didn't need him because they had Son. Delhi Ali was back in the fold and putting in some good performances. And it looked like he really cared about, you know, putting the hard yards on the pitch and... Now everything's gone. It's all up in the air again. Such is football. Well, this is the thing. You talk about those those next two games, and I think a lot of Arsenal fans would have told you after those first three games, all right, losing to Brentford is, is not a great result. Although, again, retroactively, maybe we would change our mind. It's still not a great result, but it's not as bad as it seemed. But then you play Chelsea Man City. So maybe there you go, okay, fine, it's three losses, but we'll give them these next few games. If it still goes badly against Burnley Norwich and, uh, and Spurs... We riot. And so maybe it's the same thing with Spurs here. It's like, okay, Crystal Palace is a bit like their, but they're Brentford. You know, that's an absolute shocking result. But those do happen time to time in the Premier League. Arsenal and Chelsea, you know, Chelsea are looking really, really good this season. They may well be the ones to win the league. And Arsenal, okay, yeah, they weren't in form and, 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 and Tottenham supposedly were, but derbies do happen in a vacuum. So I can see 
a way where Nuno gets away with this, and, and not even gets away with this, but this is fine. This isn't that big a deal, and people are over uh, over making a mess of it. But if they lose to Villa, if they can't get a result against Newcastle as well, then it really is action stations. Well, I think um, we. Um, my instinct is that I think we need to caveat this Derby's happening in, in a vacuum because I think that it's important to distinguish the fact that by by that at least what I mean is that up to the game it doesn't matter what's happened after the game it very much does and you can be completely demoralised by a result like this oh I agree so you know it's not that like this game just exists at, on its own as a separate entity it's that up to the game it's all to play for and then afterwards there's a big impact to be had. And, you know, Spurs will definitely be reeling from all this. But let's flip it around, talk about Arsenal. I mean, they didn't have a lot of form going into it, but a couple of quiet 1-0 victories, not, you know, to, to be respected. Um, you know, 1-0 against Norwich, they didn't look great, but it's a, it's three points. And then 1-0 against Burnley, a very difficult to break down Burnley, and they managed to find the goal through Odegaard. And then now this really powerful 3-1 win where they just ran riot. I think that Arsenal looks like they're kind of, you know, on the up and up. Well, this is what the the kids call a, a turning point, isn't it? Or it could be at least because I think it is. Yes. You know, a one 0 against Norwich hardly inspires confidence. A one 0 against Burnley, despite the the rhetoric that Turf Moor is an extremely difficult place to go to, which it, which it really isn't statistically. Um, you know, it, it also doesn't really inspire a lot of confidence. But three goals. I mean, three one belies how well Arsenal played against Spurs. Uh, I think Spurs are sort of a little bit lucky to get that 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 goal back, or not lucky, but it. Relative to the flow of play. It came against the run of play, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think they played so spectacularly in that first half that I don't think we... We thought that an Arteta team could play like that. Certainly I didn't. I thought that they were really, you know, kind of a lost cause until they got a new manager in. And for me, jury's still well out. I don't think one fantastic game, even if it is against Spurs, makes the man. But... It's a good sign. And if you can build on that, and as you say, like, you know, confidence that comes in. They've got Brighton next, a Brighton side that are doing very well at the moment. So this will be a, a, a tougher game than maybe you would think just by looking at it on the fixture list. But, um, you know, momentum is a powerful force. And if Arsenal can take that momentum off those two relatively easier games, but nothing's an easy game in, in the Premier League, and then smashing their rivals 3-1, um, you know, you can only you can only imagine where it's going to go, and I think a lot of the players that have come in as well, you know, two of the players who have been their best players during this period have been two of the signings that were most ridiculed across the Premier League. Um, Aaron Ramsdale, everyone was sort of giving it the well, he's gone down with three different teams, he's not very good, blah blah blah, and you know, even for someone like myself, I, I wasn't entirely confident that he was fantastic, and I still think you know, three games again doesn't make the man, but so far he's not put a foot foot wrong. Takahiro Tomiyasu was sort of getting lambasted and laughed at by Kavis Olicon yeah, on, on, on Sky Sports, and, and everyone was sort of going, "Who is this guy? What are, you know? He's, he's such a loser." And he's pocketed human son in the game. Now again, it's just a good do you think game. A little bit of bias there, do you think, against some um, you know players coming in not from Europe? Very, very, very po- well, well, as in not a European player, but coming in from Bologna. Yeah. Yeah, very, very possibly. I mean, very, very, very possibly indeed. Um, but, you know, he, he's played a game there where I know Hume Son scored that goal, but that wasn't really down to Tommy Asu. But for the majority of that game, he's pocketed Hume Son. As a fullback... It's no small feat. You're not going to get many more many more big tests than that. Maybe, maybe Mohamed Salah. 
But in terms of just got, beyond that, yeah, in, yeah. in terms of a one-on-one down the left flank, mm-hmm. you know that, that, that that's the that's the mini boss basically, um, and and he's passed with flying colours in, in that example. So you know those players coming in and doing fantastically. Obviously, we talked about Smith and Saka, who we, we know are quality, but those players coming in and doing fantastically. Partey looking at his best. Even Granite Xhaka had a great game. Although I do think that Spurs tactically, you know. I, I, Saka, uh, sorry, Xhaka did very well. I don't think it was partly because Spurs went with this extremely bizarre tactic where they sort of had a midfield that didn't play at all as a midfield. Dele Alli was pushing all the way up the pitch. So was Tangi and Dombele. And Pierre-Emil Hoiberg was retreating so far that he was like another centre-back at times. And so the players in the middle of the pitch had so much time on the ball that even someone like Xhaka, who has a good pass on him, but can be a bit laboured and, and, you know, on, on the ball and turn quite slowly. Yeah. Look well class because he had about 30 seconds to make each pass. No, he definitely did. And I think um, you've touched on what was, like, really at fault during this game, which was, you know, the use of Pierre-Emil Hoiberg because he's so important to that midfield. And I don't know if it's to do with the fact that, you know, they just felt less defensively solid than they have Spurs. Um, I mean, they had Sanchez and Eric Dyer in, in the back. Four, but I don't know. To to need someone like Hobe to drop back in does mean that it'll create this massive amount of space. And and Dombelli, as good as he's been, isn't the player that can fill that gap yet. And and Deli Ali also no. So yeah, I think um I think they they made a real meal of it tactically, and also um just performatively. Um, but you know, let's talk about their opponents coming up. You mentioned Brighton there. They have also had a bit of a turn in form in fate in the last few weeks they um had been looking really good <laughs> they they did until they decided to do the most brighton thing of all time and you know they've been looking really really good this season they've been picking up a lot of really interesting wins we spoke about this in the in the zabby episode how you know if they can get the right performances together if they can get the right goal scorers together they could be an interesting sort of threat and they had the chance to go top of the league when they played in the uh, m23 derby against crystal palace uh, which is a game that uh, i predicted exactly 1-1 because i was like it's only a matter of time till brighton do a brighton <laughs> and, and, and they did in that game. Um, but to be fair, Crystal Palace were also a side looking good. So this might be, you know, at the end of this season, we'll be going, wow, that was first place versus second place. We didn't even know it yet. Yeah, but um, but no, Brighton have been really, really interesting to, to watch. And that's a, a, a bizarre thing to say. You know, they've beaten Leicester. They've they've really put the, put the business against Brentford, who are seeming like a side that's tough to beat. They've managed to put goals past... Um, uh, they, they did lose to Everton, but they managed to put goals past Watford as well, who obviously newly promoted, and uh, started it all off by sure. beating Burnley 2-2-1, which you know, is <laughs> definitely not as tough to go. But they, they've had a good run of results for Brighton, which might sound sort of patronising, say, for Brighton. But We always kind of talk about how you know they, they're going to end up towards the bottom end of the table, but they have these like brief flashes. Everyone goes, are Brighton like a contender for top half of the table? And then they go, just kidding. Yeah, I, 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 just, yeah. I, I do think in the long run, the lack of it, unless they sign a forward, because the, the player we talked about, Dallas Seema, that I thought might come in when, you know, Neil Morpé starts throwing his uh, his tantrums, was going to maybe replace him well, but they've now loaned him out to Stoke, which is kind of a weird choice. Uh, yeah, weird choice, indeed. And, um, and he's gone straight into the team for Stoke, um, so maybe they just want him for more experience, which I kind of get, but then I was like, why did you not sign another striker? I, I mean, I, I don't know either. Um, it it does seem like a strange one on the surface. You got to wonder whether or not there's there's more stuff going on behind the scenes that we know about. I mean, more pays in good form at the moment. So yeah, but how long is that going to last? And, I, and I, I, not I, not the season. I think is is the general convention. Well, and happily would be proved wrong, much like you know Danny Ings kind of came out of nowhere and started doing really well. 
Um, but I just don't see it happening for Morpe in the same way. Let's look next at a team that are doing as well as no one but us expected um, in that they are performing just to our specifications of, of just, you know, way over expected from them, but, but smashing it. And that's Brentford. Um, obviously, as we mentioned there, they kicked off the season with a 2-0 against Arsenal. And a lot of people maybe sort of wrote them off with that. They went, well, you know, it's their first game. It's their first game, you know, in the Premier League for a long time. It's their first game in the new stadium. It's against Arsenal, who are all over the shop. 2-0 doesn't really say that much about them, or does it say about everything else? Um, and they followed that, that up with a couple of muted results, a 0-0 against Palace and a 1-1 against Aston Villa. But since then... They did lose to Brighton, but Brighton are looking like a force now. It's sort yeah, of yeah, all sure. relative. And then they've put two past Wolves and three past Liverpool, albeit in a 3-3 draw. And Liverpool are a side that are currently top of the Premier League. Um, you would have to consider them you know, somewhat in, in the running for the title. Personally, I don't think they will just because of the AFCON, which I think is going to hit them too hard. But Brentford's come up and do that. But three past Liverpool. They're the leads of this season, which is, you know, the, the mantle we always want to see, a leads every single season coming up. True, it'd be fun uh, having to think about who's who that's going to be next. Norwich, maybe, in two years' time. I'm just, I, <laughs> um, there's, uh, I've, I've uh, had to think about this. I've looked at every single team in the Championship at the moment. There's not one I'm excited about coming up. Yet. Yes. No, no, there's time. There's time. There's so many games in the championship. Coach. There's a couple of familiar teams. No, but like you know how sometimes you just look at a team and you go like, oh, it's like, like I'm not maybe like a Reading, but like there's no one at the moment in the championship that I'm going like, oh, really excited to like West Brom, Huddersfield. That's fair. Bournemouth. Yeah. That's fair. But um, yeah. But anyway, let's stay on Brand. Let's stick with Brentford. And, <laughs> no, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll stop. I'll stop <laughs> losing fans from the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, Brentford. I, it's funny because I, I feel like I was more surprised with 2-0 Wolves than I was with 2-0 Arsenal it, as a win just because Wolves are so defensively robust and solid and, and they don't seem to have as many upsets whereas Arsenal you always kind of feel they've got a good kind of 10-15% rogue element yeah, which performance in them but Wolves you know in theory are quite a stable unit and Brentford just <laughs> took them apart. Well, we looked um, at the, those first three games that Wolves lost all 1-0 to like big sides and we went, well, they've lost 1-0 but they've managed to keep it to just 1-0. They couldn't keep it to just 1-0 against Brentford. Against Brentford. Exactly. Um, and so I would say almost, you know, that's that's the more surprising, even probably more surprising than than Liverpool, Brentford, at least at the end of the game. Obviously, during the game, it was it was exciting and surprising that they came back in the way they did and they made it such a fun match to watch. Yeah. But... Um, I would say 2-0 was, was the real surprise for me. And I think probably the biggest indicator that they're going to have a really good season because I also kind of feel like Liverpool can can lose it on the day. Like Liverpool have it in them to lose to someone like Palace or someone like um, Newcastle. Or a Watford. Or a, yeah, yeah, no, no. They, they definitely do. But I was, I was still pleasantly surprised. Well, in a way surprised, but in a way I was also like, ah, I knew it all along. <laughs> but uh, but no, Brent, Brentford doing absolutely fantastic so far. And so many of the players coming up, obviously Ivan Tony is the one that everyone thought, you know, he's going to be hopefully hitting the ground running. But it's been goals from all areas and they've had players coming in and, and looking really good. And I think what's, what's interesting about Brentford is a lot of the time you get teams who do one of two things when they get promoted. They either play exactly the same system in the Premier League with no appreciation for the fact that the level of opponent is just different, what I like to call the Norwich, or they come up and they immediately abandon what brought them success in the Championship because they're too fearful of the level of opponent they're playing, yeah, yeah, yeah. what I might call the West Brom. 
And what Brentford have done is they've sort of gone for a nice sort of not too hot, not too cold approach. They've gone for one that is, you might say, just right. Um, <laughs> they, they've managed to hold on to the bits that have been really successful in, in, in terms of getting them up from the, from the championship. And I think maybe that has been only reinforced by the fact that they lost in that playoff final those, those two years ago. They've sort of figured out, okay, well, this works in a must-win game. These are maybe less, you know, let, let's sense where the weakness is because they know when to press high. They know when to sort of sit back a little bit. They know how to put pressure on the right areas. And I think that is shown by the fact that they've managed to pull out results against not just a lot of good teams, but against different kinds of good teams. Your Wolves, your Arsenals, your Liverpools now. These are teams that you have to be able to understand not only that they play differently, but they have different weaknesses. And Brentford have been able to do that six games into the Premier League. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because obviously, you know, a lot was made of the fact that they got to the playoff finals a couple of times um, in over the course of a few years and didn't make it any time. But it's actually flipped the narrative, made them probably the most stable championship side over the last few years. And the best kind of high performing championship side over the course of a couple of seasons. So unlike someone like Norwich that yo-yos between the Premier League and the championship, they have been steadily building these these ideas. And as you say, like, you know, the, the capacity to win any game individually. And yeah, I agree with you. I think it shows they, they do seem um, you know, ready made. They're like a proper Premier League outfit already, despite only being a few games into their first season. Well, it, it's sort of like the reverse situation of, you know how sometimes you have those teams in the Premier League and Bournemouth were like this for a while, but like specifically the teams I think of are like your Sunderland's and your, Sunderland specifically and also Wigan would be the other one I think of. And they sort of hang on in the Premier League and every year everyone's going by the end of the season. How have they not quite gone down? And it's not someone like Brighton who, as we all know, choose to finish 17. Yeah, of course. You know, it's part of the game plan. It's part of the game plan. But like they always hang on and you're going, Jesus, how have you hung on? How have you hung on? How have you hung on? And as a result, when they do go down, it's normally a season or two later they're in League One. Because somehow... they like, fall hard. They fall hard. And I think it, the sort of reverse of that is maybe what Brentford have done is they've come knocking for promotion so many times, so many times, so many times. And each time, if maybe sort of like... It's like mentally, they're here to stay now. Yeah, they're here they're to stay and they've improved. And, but also like mentally, but also financially, mm. they've sort of improved a little bit and they've put a little bit more money into it and they've figured out the areas where they've, you know, they, they've learned from each defeat rather than sort of doing the Norwich, which is be euphoric that you've gone up, then go down because you're still euphoric in January when you have three wins and then come back up because you're <laughs> Wait, way better what? than else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they, um, Brentford have got a couple of They've been a couple of tough games ahead of them. They're playing West Ham um, next week and then Chelsea and then Leicester. Um, so, you know, we'll see if they can continue their red-hot form. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say it now. Rogue shout. I think they get a result against Leicester. I, I don't think they beat Chelsea. I, Interesting. I, I think they get, Leicester have been a little bit over the place, all over this place this season. Um, I just don't think that they... Should we move into Leicester next? Yeah, it feels like a natural conclusion. My rogue shout that that Brentford will beat them. Yeah, so I mean, it seems rogue on the surface, but, you know, obviously Leicester have just lost to Brighton recently, and I agree with you that they they don't seem to be as consistent, at least so far, as they have been over the last couple of years. Could it be, you know, just one too many good players have left and beyond momentum and beyond form... It's starting to show that there are cracks. Is it that Jamie Vardy's influence on games is starting to wane? 
Um, you know, Tielemans doesn't really look like he's as good as he was last year and in the Euros. What's what, what's going on in your mind? I think it's a number of things. I think that, you know, for whatever reason, Brendan Rodgers seems like a man who has won the lottery in terms of, like, where Leicester have finished in the last couple of seasons. They've sort of, in a sense, fallen the last hurdle, but in another sense, pulled it out of the bag by mixing it with the other sort of top six sides. And I feel like, as a result, he's a man who is quite stubborn now. Like, the decision to continually not play Ian show, despite the fact that he keeps sort of bailing them out whenever he does play and then just goes straight back to the bench, is just a weird one. I also think that Brendan Rodgers, maybe one of his biggest issues is that he seemingly doesn't have an eye for a centre-back. The centre-backs that he signs, and Yannick Vestergaard is, is the latest in, 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 this, uh, in this line, just, they, they often, over the years, he signed a lot of centre-backs. I mean, was, um, was Wesley Fofana a Brendan Rodgers signing, or was he, like... I think he, he was bought in 2020. So, yes. So, he must be. So, so he's, he's the only thing. But, like, a lot of the centre-backs they've had have sort of been, like, really good at the start and then sort of not so much so afterwards. And Yannick Vestgaard has just not gone off at all well. Uh, Kalasi Yunchu, who for a while everyone was sort of going, okay, this guy, you know, could really he's kick off. He's almost the replacement for, for, Harry, for Harry Maguire. Yeah, exactly. He, he's sort of now become the, the spiritual replacement for, like, a Scotland Mustafi. <laughs> To <laughs> um, someone who's just like you thought for a second he was really good, had a bit of pace for a centre back, and then just sort of all over the place. And I just think that their game management is just not really on as well. The subs are always quite confusing. It seems sort of just like more like he's bringing people on to appease them than he's doing it to make a tactical change. Um, and yeah, the results above all just aren't very good. So I mean, do you think that Leicester are similar to Liverpool in that they kind of overperformed from what they actually were? just based on pure form. I think it's the reverse. I think they have some really good players, but I just don't think they're being used in the correct way. And maybe it's just the case that Brendan Rodgers, who has been doing really well lately and has been, you know, one of the underrated managers around, maybe things are just coming, you know, this happens sometimes. We see it happen all the time. Sometimes a manager's time just expires. We saw it with Nuno last season. We saw it with, uh, you know, there's there's all sorts of managers that I can't currently think of talking about. But Brendan Rodgers, maybe things are just running out. And of course now they're going to go out next week and and smash 12 past uh, past whoever they're playing, Crystal Palace away, I think it is. But um, yeah, I, I just... Something about watching them at the moment. There were points at last season where you would go, this less supply, this less side could really be going somewhere. And I still think this less side could be going somewhere, but now it's downwards rather than upwards if they keep on this trajectory. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I feel like I, I semi-disagree with you just in that I feel like Leicester have consistently you know, outdone their expectations, or at least my expectations for them for the last few years. And it feels like Brendan Rodgers, every time you think like it's game over, kind of like Sean Dyke. Um, he just pulls another, you know, thing out of his sleeve. Oh, another, oh, exactly. another great player that can just slot in to replace the player they've just sold. And I feel like he's just run out of, of sleeves. Um, but I, I get what you're saying. I think it could be interpreted either way. Um, and it'll probably come out in the rub over the course of the season. But it does seem like they are not quite on the same level as they have been. Which is a shame, because they've been such a fun team to watch. They definitely have. Um, but... I mean, I wouldn't put it past them to... It might be something where... And I think we spoke about this in the transfers episode where, you know, Brendan Rodgers' arm gets twisted as it was with Wesley Fofana. Um, and, and a lot of the players last season, actually, you remember Lettuce started the season with loads of injuries and loads of those players that came in from Fofana to James Justin to... Um, who else was it? Who, who was the left-back that came in? 
on them. Currently drawing a blank, but who, whoever whoever it was that they that they they had a lot of players come in that uh, that you wouldn't have expected to be playing, and they all performed. And there was a part of me that was like, "Oh, that's cool. Let's have that deep end." And there was a part of me that was like, "Is that a Brendan Rodgers decision, or has his arm been you know accidentally twisted into a good position here and reset?" Um, Timothy Castagna, is that who you meant? Timothy Castagna, I think, was also, but I think it was Luke Thomas who played a, a fair bit at the start of last season. Oh right, yeah. I mean, I guess like, can, can you can, can you just again. say that that's like chance from Brendan Rodgers, or do you think you've got to say that he's really good at rolling with the punches, or do you think again little of column you, A, little of column B? Yeah, a little bit of column, but again, like I'm sort of like when when's Leicester going to have that injury crisis so he finally starts playing he and Acho, and then he and Ash scores twelve goals, and then he's like, well, Harvey Barnes is fit again. Back to the back to the <laughs> bench you go, Kalachi. I really like Harvey Barnes. I think he's good. So do I, but I don't think it's neither or. Yeah, that's true, and uh, you know, despite like and, and, and Brendan does in the same way as like you can like a, a player but not want them to play every single week. Um, I think you can, you can have them, but I think you could play them both and play some sort of system with either a front two or. But but <laughs> Brendan clearly sees it as neither or. I mean, I also want to see Pat and Dak play. I want to see like a front nine from Leicester. <laughs> Should Iosie Perez be anywhere near this front? This um, starting lineup? God no. Uh, he, he was he was a player who, when he was in Newcastle, I thought he was really interesting, and I thought like maybe he'll kick on someday. But it, it's just it's not working out. Not so far, that's for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I think um, they they're going to have a weird crossroads of a season unless they can pull out another great sign. I mean, someone like Pat Sandaka just popping off would be you know, classic yeah, Leicester. But this, this is exactly what I mean in terms of like twisting the arm. This is what I mean in terms of like someone sort of. That, that, that could happen to them and all of a sudden they've, they've accidentally fallen into a great season. Well, write them off at your peril. Um, let's have a little break and talk some useless trivia. Cam, what have you got for us this week? So the start that I went for is something to do with Cristiano Ronaldo. And Cristiano Ronaldo has rejoined the league and there are a litany of stats that you could pick that are interesting about Cristiano Ronaldo from his goals to his assists to his free kick conversion rate to probably something like his white blood cell count that would be, you know, all sorts of record-breaking and interesting. Um, But the stat that I've gone for is actually about a record that he has reclaimed, uh, which is that he is yet again the last Premier League player to win the Ballon d'Or. Obviously, the award flitted between himself and Lionel Messi uh, for a long time, and so there was no opportunity for a Premier League player to uh, to have picked it up besides them. But who would you say, Rupert, is the Premier League player before Cristiano Ronaldo to have last won the Ballon d'Or? And which club do you think they played for? Wow. Um, the Ballon d'Or. I don't think Alan Shearer ever won it. He did not. You can, um, have, you, you can have one guess, but I'm moving along quickly. So I don't I'm... think JJ Acocha ever won it. <laughs> well... <laughs> Um, it wasn't how it wasn't it wasn't Carnu for Arsenal. No, it was not the last uh, Premier League club to field a Ballon d'Or winner before United re-signed Cristiano Ronaldo was in fact Stoke City with 2001 Ballon d'Or winner Michael Owen. For Stoke, oh my goodness me! And after, was that after the that incredible international competition? He was just flying on top of the world, and he was absolutely yeah. Indeed, it was the, the boy wonder. Age like eighteen. Um, Fair play. Oh, I completely forgot about my yeah. It's quite annoying. Was, it's like it, a little uh, useless trivia and guessing game wrapped into one. It really is, yeah. Um, that is a that is a surprising little statistic. Stoke though. had the the second last Ballon d'Or winner in the Premier League, and they're not even in the Premier. They're in the Premier League for like three years. It has been a while for them. Um, well, not to be outdone, I also have a a nice little piece of useless trivia for you, Cam, um, and it's about everyone's favourite ASMR current Premier League manager, Steve Bruce. 
Um, did you know that in the 1990-91 season, so a couple of years before the Premier League was founded, Steve Bruce, um, while playing for Man U at the time, who finished sixth that year, was Man U's top scorer from centre-back with 19 goals. I, I did know that. He, he, he had a goal in him, did Bruce? <laughs> I mean, like, you can, he can hit them and, like, you know, you've got, you got centre-backs throughout history that can hit them. Someone like, I don't know, Ronald Koeman, but top scorer for Manchester United? Uh, yeah, it, it must have been a weird season for them. I do always think, because Koeman was another one, like, did they just have, like, not goalie gloves not goalie gloves in the bad days so if you just hit it hard enough it was going yeah, you, you in you and just have the centre-backs with big thighs would just slam them in yeah well I guess like you know it, it depends on what, what they're good at you know I mean Roman Kuma was famously pretty good at taking set pieces um, but Steve Bruce who's an absolute powerhouse I don't know if you've ever seen um, that famous clip of him in training while he's a manager and he absolutely slots a volley from like 30 yards out um what age like 45 well you never lose it I mean of course that's not the most memorable clip of Steve Bruce has been doing the rounds on the internet this week not quite He uh, he's apparently quite a quick man according to FIFA 2022 according to EA Sports he's, uh, he's faster than most of the Newcastle bench which either means he's a quick man or they just don't <laughs> rate the Newcastle subs bench god it's been a long time since I played FIFA and you can't tell apart from the fact that I called it FIFA 2022 <laughs> but let's uh, let's go back and let's bounce to the top of the table we've got Two great one nils. We sure do, yeah. I mean, um, Chelsea Man City. Should we start there? Let's start there because this is a game that you know the scoreline was probably the way we saw it. These are two teams that have fantastic defenses. I don't think anyone thought it was going to be a high-scoring game, um, but we probably thought that it was going to be going the other way around. I mean, I tested you the night before, going, "It's weird to think that." Just said, don't... I don't see any way that City win this game. I just didn't, and, and the records that Tuchel and Pep have had against each other has been such so far. It's sort of like. You know, Pep is sort of like the luxury manager who sort of does every single mad thing, but always is defeated by the rational, sort of pragmatic manager. Um, and Tuchel sort of is is the, the the prime of that. And so I just didn't see it happening. And what happened was that both managers made really weird lineup decisions that ended up sort of cancelling each other out and sort of forming this weird system where it was just anyone's game. And eventually, Gabriel Jesus just won. Like score the goal to win it. Um, I just thought that the lineups, like for Chelsea, I understand that you know Tuchel leans defensive sometimes, but to go with the midfield of Kante, Jorginho, and Kovacic just seemed like mad overkill, and there was no connection with the players up front. And then the players up front on top also made no sense to me, at least. I know we talked about how you know someone like Lukaku and Werner, maybe the fact that they've both excelled in, in dual striker systems could see them play well together. But I always think, like, why would you play Werner there if you could play Havertz? I think that affords you so much more ability. And Chelsea looked at their best in that game when Havertz came on and sort of joined the attack and sort of allowed them to become more fluid and connected there. And, you know, it was so obvious with those two players. Because Werner, at his best in terms of sort of fluidity, he plays on the wing. He's not going to drop back to connect that play. And that was so, so obvious. They were both sort of sitting, waiting for a ball to come forwards that never, ever did because all three midfield players were sitting quite deep. City on the other hand decided that this was the game to go for Rodri and dual free A's which is a system I'm pretty sure we've not seen them go with yet um, on top of a Phil Foden false nine so it was a a weird system from both sides that sort of just created this black hole of anti-football from which City emerged the victors it was um, I mean yeah it was um, kind of anti-football but also you know you've got to give credit to City because you know they had six shots to Chelsea zero 
with three on target. I mean, they nullified Chelsea so well. I think. Um, I, think I would argue that Chelsea nullified themselves, though. Well, so I think that the that the main problem that Chelsea had was that, as you say, that their midfield lacked a lot of creative output, and there's an over reliance on a Kovacic to make breaking runs, which I think he's really good at, but not when he's the main focal creative output. No one's got to make a breaking run from about four in, kilometers yeah, from, yeah. from the heart of the defense to <laughs> yeah, Inverna exactly. stranded a million miles away. Going, You're right, mate. Exactly. And then um, I think the second one was just um, you know an, an over reliance on fullbacks that has seen Chelsea do really well up until now, but um, you know to rely on like Marcus Alonso and Rhys James to you know pull the goods out of the bag, especially when Rhys James then came off injured after 30 minutes and, and wasn't really replaced until, as we said, Kai Havertz came on in the 60th minute. I think that was a bit of a mistake. I think as soon as Rhys James comes off, you need to bring on someone like Mason Mount, who isn't going to make the midfield more porous, but is also going to just be a lot more forward thinking. Um, so I, I would say, despite Tuchel being, until this point, really good at reacting in-game, I uh, I got a big fan of him actually as a manager purely because he's not afraid to take players off and change things at half time. Yeah. I've got so much time for Absolutely hook players if it needs um, to be. And he just didn't do it um, this time and I really think that he should have done and I, I don't quite know why he didn't. Yeah, it, it may be one of those things that's a bit of a wake up call. It, it just seemed weird to me because I thought, you know, if this had been Pep and Tuchel's first meeting in the Premier League, you could maybe get why he went for the system, but he has a really good record against. I think he's won three games or all three games before this before this match, and this is their fourth meeting, and, and he's lost it. So I just didn't really understand why he was sort of knocking his knees about a manager that he's quite soundly bested up to date. Well, I think it's, as you say, it is a bit of a wake up call because you see it all the time um, with managers who come into the Premier League and they do really well, perform you know above expectations. But then they become complacent because they're not used to and the fact that any team can beat any team. And I think that it's as you say, he was confident of his win just because Chelsea were in flying form, City weren't. He has a great record against um, Guardiola and Guardiola, I think, just surprised him, to be honest. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's another one of those scenes, isn't it? We talked about it with Arsenal Spurs, like how much of this was one team doing well and how much of it was another team doing badly. I don't, th- I don't think this I was mean, necessarily they, a they, city masterclass. They closed Chelsea out pretty tidily. Yes, Chelsea didn't do, didn't do themselves any favours, but I think you've got to give them credit for like, the pressing system and things like that. Yeah, I just, I, I don't see Chelsea having... The whole wing-backs thing, like we saw so much of the Euros, like as soon as you become a team that everyone knows that wing-backs is where you're going, which how can you make more of a signal than that when all of the creativity comes from wide? All of a sudden it's a lot harder for wing-backs to be effective because people go, well, they're going wide. Like we saw this is how England beat Germany. Who went, well, shut down those avenues and all of a sudden... the, the, The whole sort of like, obviously we're not in, you know, 2004 anymore, but the whole reason that wingbacks works people are going like ah oh, they're going to play it through the middle or play it to one of the wide players up top let's look at the wingers and make sure they're marked what's this a right back with a nosebleed that's totally foiled my defensive plans and when you know that's coming this far in advance how can you not defend against it unless you're a team that's just that lacking in quality which in all teams City aren't yeah it was interesting because you know we can't talk about how Tuchel failed at a plan B but also 
you know, this was a new look Chelsea because to have Werner and Lukaku starting up front is not something they've really done before, at least in the Premier League. And I mean, first first attempt seems to have been a pretty resounding failure. I I just don't understand what Timo Werner's done. Like he is a man with a million lives. He he cannot stop getting second chances. He stinks out game after game after game for Chelsea. And successive managers are going. Yeah, go on then, mate. And, and Tuchel is a great manager. I, I don't think anyone would argue that in the world. And he keeps giving Werner chances. I don't know what he's done to earn them. The only thing I can think is that is there some sort of like Chelsea-specific thing where managers get told to play the most expensive players? Because it does seem like Werner gets a lot of chances. But if that was the case, Havertz is more expensive. If I, if I was a man, if I was any player playing yeah, against Chelsea and, right. I, and I saw Werner over Havertz and Havertz would be left out, I'd be like wiping my, I'd probably literally wipe my brow in the tunnel because I'd be going, well, that's that that's just miles preferable. I think Werner's one thing that he's got going for him is is the pace, but Havertz is stronger. Havertz is better on the ball. Havertz is more you know adaptable to situations. Big in the air. But yeah, big in the air. I, I just don't get why you wouldn't want to try if you're going to go for that duo, which as we both discussed, I think is an interesting system if you play the right midfield and defence around it, why would you go for Werner? Why is that the place that your mind darts to? What is it he's done at Chelsea that makes you go, let's give it him a chance? Well, I I feel like I get why you'd want to try Werner with Lukaku. I mean, we've, we've talked about it before on the podcast. You know, Werner played best with a big striker partnering him. Lukaku played best with a small striker partnering him. Werner's really quick, can link up decently with other attackers. Not quite as good as Havertz, you're right, but you know, it, it all makes sense. Just why try against City? I well, think well, that's, that, yeah, that's, I think the, that's thing. the point. It, it's like, it, try against Norwich, great. Have a good time with it. See how he does. You know, they, they get 10 chances, they only score three. It's not the worst thing in the well, world. Well, but, that's the irony, isn't it? It's this, this was sort of like the inverse of the Champions League final. It was like, obviously, this is not anywhere near as important a match, but Chelsea chose this match to go, let's throw every game plan Time out of the window and try something completely new and got punished for it. Maybe, maybe this was sort of like retribution. Maybe this was Tuchel being like, all right, pull Pep's pants down. Let, let's, let's, give him a, let's give him one. <laughs> it was like a gentleman's agreement at the, end, at the beginning of the game. It was like, come on, man. Can you, let me have one, please. That would be quite nice. Should we look at our other one now, which is uh, not not our most well, it might be our most shocking sort of last last minute result. But there's another one I want to talk about after this. But that is uh, Man United nil, Aston Villa one. A hilarious result for a number of reasons, but weirder because of the whole sort of Bruno Fernandez essay that he wrote, like the apology essay. Did you see this on Twitter? I actually didn't see it. No. He wrote like an, an essay apology being like, oh, I'm so sorry, United fans. Like, I missed a penalty and I, that's not good enough, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, look, I, I have no love lost for Bruno Fernandes, personally. I think he's, uh, he, something about his uh, his rat face does not endear me to him. Um, and the fact that he's, he's always... I, 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 I quite like him. No, he's always throwing himself down. I, I, I can't, I can't. Yeah, but he's such a good it. teammate. He's a good teammate. He's a fantastic footballer, but something about players that always sort of just hurl them down and sort of whinge to the ref and all that, I, I find it very hard to like them. Um, but, you know, no one can say that he's not a good player and no one can say that he's not been great for United and definitely no one can say that he hasn't been great at penalties for United. So the idea that he would have to apologise for a bad penalty is like, do you literally want him to do the, the Matt Letizier and only miss the last one of his career? Because he's scored so many good penalties, so many he important really penalties. Has, yeah. And the fact Absolutely that he feels, because he's not done that in a vacuum, he's gone that because he will have been getting abuse and he'll know that there's been more abuse to come. The fact that he's felt the need to apologise is just like, 
talk to kids, but I did. I just found this. It seems a little, uh, a little intense, doesn't it? I mean, did you see um, what you probably might have, might have liked was um, Emmy Martinez's mind games before the penalty. Oh, fantastic! Did you see this? Fantastic! So Martinez kind of made his name in the Copa America, was it um, over the summer? Just having an absolute masterclass um, of mind games and also saves during um, you know Argentina's run to the title and. Before this one, um, it's you know he was pointing to Ronaldo, being like, "Let Ronaldo take it." Obviously, Fernandez ended up being the one to take it, but I just love the fact that he tapped into that insecurity about you know this new player coming in, Ronaldo, and putting pressure on him to outperform. And I, I just kind of feel like it has to have been at least in part. To do with that, it's like the way he skied it was just hundred percent. It was. I, I just love Emmy Martinez so much. I think he's such a. Cool he's he's, he's a great shit house, and then he sort of did a little jig after as he was celebrating the life fan. But it, fantastic. It was, so, sometimes you see things. It was like remember when um, Spain and Italy had that shootout at the Euros, and beforehand when the two captains were chatting and Chiellini was sort of like playfully bullying Jordi Alba. And, and yeah, you just, he was you just, just gra- he was just you, like you, tossing him around like a ragdoll. You just went the, the shootout's over. Don't, why bother taking it? Italy have won here. Because they, they, that was it. The rest of the team was just looking on at that, and, and Italy, every player was just going, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're the big we, dick boy." Psychologically, and, and, it's us. And, and Spain it's would us. have just been like, "Great, well, that's our captain, is it?" So it was the same thing here. Martinez was just giving him the business, and it was just like, and it was the first time Fernandez didn't do his sort of, you know, little trademark run with the jump and the, and yeah, the thing. Yeah, yeah. He decided to just run up. It was not even like a great; it just skied it. A dreadful penalty. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I would be very hard pushed to believe that wasn't part of what, what made it happen, the mind games, which is fantastic. But but Villa, otherwise, I mean, a game that, you know, when United got that late penalty, I thought, wow, they, they're going to be really unlucky at Villa because I thought they deserved to win this game. They defended super, super well. Corny Horse was fantastic to score the goal. Um, I think he also gave away the penalty, which was also why I felt bad, but the whole team played really, really well. And Villa are a team that are looking quite interesting. I mean, obviously at the moment, they are eighth, which is... Not, not bad for them if you can consider that you know there are six teams and yeah, Bright, yeah, Brighton are sure. one of the top six. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who who they replace is Leicester. Or... Uh, it's it's Arsenal. The West Ham supports to replace Tottenham. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, but no, yeah, no, they're, they're they're looking good so far this season, and they had a little bit of I can't remember the game that it was, but they had a little bit of a shaky result at one point. Wherever went, oh god, the lock was it the first game for Aston Villa. The first game where they had like a bit of a shocking result, and everyone went, "Oh god, the lack of Grealish effect is really hurting them." What, what, yeah, I mean, I mean, they did first result. They, 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 they lost three two. Yeah, they, they, they didn't were, like, start the season point. well, just because. I mean, it's always going to be tough when you have that many changes to the squad. You're just not going to have the same cohesion, the same balance that you you've got used to. And Aston Villa, until Grealish left, were a pretty stable team in terms of you know comings and goings. They they kept their spine really well. Like John McGinn's still there; he's so key. Um, Tyron Mings is still there, super ma- like massively important to the squad, um, and you know they brought in all these new players, and yeah, it, it's going to take a little while for them to ramp it back up again. And it kind of looks like they're there now, which is which is cool. Um, I think I think we'll see even more of it because they've got I think Leon Bailey is is, is re injured maybe, and he's sort of still sort of struggling with a bit of an injury. But he came in and looked really really good uh, last week when they beat Everton three nil. He sure and, did, and, and he's one that you you have to imagine that as he gets more time, is going to continue to look better and better. Yeah, definitely. Um, couldn't agree more. I had a little bit of a chuckle about the uh, the ref Mike Dean in this game just because. Uh, 
you know, he did everything in his contract for Man U. He did all he could, gave the penalty away. He's, you know, hands up. <laughs> what more can he try? What more can he do, really? You know, unless he, unless he takes the penalty, which, <laughs> you know, I, I thought it was going to be Ronaldo. I was actually more surprised that Bruno Fernandes took it than Ronaldo than I would have been if Mike Dean had stepped up and blasted it at top, top bins. All right, gun to your head. You've got a yes, no answer ahead of you. You get it wrong, you're gone. Does Mike Dean slot that penalty? No. If, he, if he takes it. No shot. No <laughs> shot. No shot. He, he blasts it well over the bar, but he, he turns before the ball has like gone and is celebrating to, <laughs> to the crowd as the ball sails over the bar. You think he blasts it? I think it's just weak. I think he like scuffs it to the bottom left and it just you know trickles into the keeper's arms. No, I, I, I say this because, probably because this is what I would do. I think if you're taking a penalty in a full-size goal yeah, against goalkeeper... As hard as you can. You, you've just got to leather it and hope that it goes in the right direction. You just like, look at the top right corner and just foot through the ball. And it, it goes over the... Actually, what probably happens is you kick the ground and fall into the ball. Oh, God. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe, maybe. Um, but yeah, no, it was, it, it was a bizarre... But yeah, no, I mean, just wrapping that game up, I mean... Who would have thought that Man United would get a penalty with Ronaldo on the pitch and Ronaldo wouldn't take it? I mean, I kind of think that it's... I quite like that he didn't, just because of the respect of coming in. And they've shown him a lot of respect, giving him his shirt number and things like that. And I like the fact that, you know, Bruno Fernandes is also one of their star players. And Ronaldo just hasn't kind of come in and and is suddenly already the biggest dick in the changing room. But but I think what you just mentioned there is a great example of him having that mentality. He got got there. Edinson Cavani at the number seven, he just went, give me that. That's so much bigger than a penalty going, give me that. Ronaldo is very much a give me that kind of guy. He is, but I I don't know. I feel like... He, he, didn't, he didn't play in the, the you know, the, the 2012 Euros final. Everyone was going, it was 2016 Euros final. Everyone was going, oh, what a great goal from Eddie. Went, give me that. <laughs> <laughs> give me the man of the match forwards for cheering on my he team was from, the, the pitch. from the <laughs> sidelines I mean he uh, I don't know it, it seems like maybe yeah he could have been maybe too respectful to to Fernandes but I don't think it's necessarily a fault of his I mean obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, but ultimately Ronaldo has a really good penalty record but so too does Bruno Fernandes I, I, I think I, it, it's, it's basically just down to Fernandes and yeah, I, I'm, I'm just surprised. I, one of the last people I would have thought I would see giving up a penalty, in, a decisive penalty, no less. Like, maybe if it was... To the point where maybe my thought process was, like, maybe that's the agreement they have. Maybe they're like, listen, Ronnie, obviously you want to score as many goals. If it's a penalty that doesn't have any bearing, you take as many as you want. When it's a one that needs to be scored, Bruno I'm Fernandes is, 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 our, is our actual specialist. Although you would have to think maybe that's changed now. Should, I mean, you would, you would very much think that's changed. Uh, is is Fernandes going to say the next one? I kind of feel like it's a dressing room thing in that, you know, obviously Ronaldo's come in. And they've got all of these big <laughs> Who names. Who in the United dressing room is siding against Ronaldo? No, but they've got all of these big names. And I think it's also down to the manager. The manager decides who takes the penalty. True. Obviously, you know, stuff happens on the pitch sometimes. <laughs> but, again, but again, can you see Solskjaer siding against Ronaldo? Yeah, I can. I really can. Because he's got this now... He's got a juggling match, which is to try and, and make sure that while Ronaldo is happy and coming in and settling well, he is not displacing all of their already big names to do so. You've really got to try and find that balance. So I, I could imagine that people like, listen, Ronaldo, we want you to be as involved as possible, but I've got to side with my boy who has been, you know, player of the season for the last two years because... I want to keep him happy and he actually does put him away. 
Yeah, no, that's very fair enough. Um, shall we segue from Man United into their game last week and the team they played against? Because I think we're probably coming fairly close to time. Uh, and that was West Ham, who lost last week to Man United, but had a very dramatic win uh, this week against uh, Leeds. Leeds United. Um, and West Ham, you know, without Mikel Antonio last week, didn't look as potent. And then who else but Mikel Antonio scored the winner very late on? And it just does make me think, I, I, this is weirdly a problem with too many teams in the Premier League, which is not just a top-flight football league, but the most moneyed top-flight football league. Folks, get a backup striker. It's it's not a million-dollar idea. It could be a billion-dollar idea. <laughs> <laughs> you would think that it would be more tried and tested. It's I mean, bizarre. How many managers can you get on that phone with to, to tell them that? I mean, Pep, for sure. Uh, well, they didn't even need a backup striker. They need a starting yeah, striker. Actual striker. I, I mean, just don't Chelsea know. could do with a better backup striker. Arsenal could do with a better backup striker. Spurs could do with a better backup striker. It just when I was a young lad, all the all the little young lads like me would be going, "I want to be a striker. I want to be a striker." And and you know, as, as I became a, a slightly adolescent lad. There were, there were those of us, myself included, who wanted to play as number 10, uh, and those really cynical and masochistic that wanted to play as a centre-back or, 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 or a goalkeeper, and those that weren't good enough and had to play as a full-back. Um, but the strike position seems almost unglamorous to some managers in the modern game. I mean, even someone like, for example, Liverpool, who you know been very successful, don't really play with a traditional striker. Man City don't play with a striker at all. Um, you know, Chelsea play Werner, who's not a striker, by my money. <laughs> like, what, what, yeah, what is I mean, it? And, and, and I... almost... It, it almost never, except for the the example of Liverpool, I think that's a that's a system to facilitate Salah. Almost never, when managers sort of discount the importance of a striker, does it prove to be a wise decision? Which is unsurprising because they're the guys whose job it is to score the goals. And the basic point of football, when you boil it all down, is to score more goals than the other team. But the problem is that's not just their role anymore. With modern football changing, and you know, even goalkeepers have you know two or three different hats these days. They they can sometimes play sweepers, they can play distributors, they can play shot stoppers. Um, you know, strikers not only have to score twenty goals a season. You know, they need to lead the line. They need to be really good at hold up play. They need to, you know, start the press from the front. And I think a lot of the time managers lose sight of the fact that. At the end of the day, you also need someone who's going to put away a chance. But but that, um, that's what I think the problem is. I, I, I we spoke about this on a. Uh, well, I, I I grumbled about this on an episode a few weeks ago. I think where I was saying like, I think the modern striker managers are trying to be a bit too clever by half, and they're going like, oh right, Mister Number Nine, here's a list of twelve things I want you to do, like off the ball, on the ball, and the striker's busy doing all of that and forgets to score a goal. And we saw that no more, you know, obviously than with Harry Kane at the Euros. He was so busy dropping deep to pick up the ball and try and connect player that he wasn't doing the thing that he is one of the best of the world at, which is putting goals away. And he did really well doing a lot of it at Spurs last season. But again, this season, it's sort of just not getting the right... I, I just think striker and goalkeeper are maybe two of the most, like, big positions you don't want to mess around with things too much. I think centre-backs, hey, I'm all here for the ball-playing centre-back idea and sort of, you know, hey, you can start attacking that wingers. Give me an inverted winger all day long. Love it. Give me a winger that tugs the touchline, which is now, now weirdly, the, the rarer of the two. <laughs> Give me, like, a, you know, a box-to-box midfielder that can also sort of, like, get a good tackle. Give me a nice attack. But the striker who's... who If you're a striker and your first thought is ever not, I want to put the ball in the net, I just think fundamentally something's gone wrong. And and some to, to the point where a lot of people are playing players who aren't strikers as strikers because they're going... 
well, it'd be cool if we had a guy who was a goal scorer, but what about someone who played up front who could thread a nice pass or press really well? And I'm like, well, you'll press really well, but then he won't finish. Look, I think that it's a combination of two things. Um, the first also, is... Sorry, there's a lot of time about West Ham, who haven't decided to do this. They, they, they've been playing Mikel Antonio, they haven't bought a backup striker. No, this true. Is, this is my old no, man yells at false nines we're, moment. We're, we're different. It's fine, it's fine. We're deviating, but it's okay. I think that it's a combination of two things. One, I think that there's a real emphasis on, and a real pressure on having like a, a backup system in place that you can resort to when you know you find a team that is really difficult to break down or you know a team that you just can't quite get that goal and you want to change something so you want someone in the wings that you can bring on that will mix things up and will change the system so i think that's that's part of it and i think the other part is maybe that strikers by nature don't want to be backups i think a good striker would rather be and you ask any striker i'm sure apart from like one or two that are happy to just sit on someone's bench and and make a lot of money they not only want to be leading a line but also, they really struggle when they're not leading a line. I mean, look at someone like, for some reason, just now, Wilfred Bonney popped into my mind. Mm. I mean, had such a good season for Swansea after having such a good season for Vitesse. And then got bought by City, sat on the bench and did sweet fuck all anytime yeah. he, he made onto the pitch. I think they are the ultimate like momentum players and form players. And it's, it's so psychological to... to convince yourself that you can do it week in week out that I think a good backup striker is incredibly hard to come by oh yeah and no, I, I think someone you know like an Ed and Jekko type is is weird though it sounds because they don't they're not quite good enough to make it the first team but they're they're as rare as they come they're worth their weight in gold but I, I also think a big part of that comes down to the manager if you can sort of especially with a lot of these modern teams like West Ham are playing in the Europa League this season West Ham will play 50 to 60 games this season, depending on how far they get into various tournaments, maybe even more than that. You have enough games to portion that around. Not to mention the fact that someone like Mikel Antonio has been played with, obviously this wasn't an injury, this was a a red card, but it's not a huge leap to imagine that at some point he'll be out for six weeks. So to to go into the season with no no plan B for that is is insane to me. Well, I think um, think a lot of teams are going to be looking at the uh, January transfer window with uh, ambitions. Are they um, though? <laughs> are we living in a mad world where one strike is enough? Well, we're like, and, and Liverpool don't do anything when they when they need about four different new players. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, it's it's a weird one, for sure. But, you know, they came, Antonio came back. They Ant- won the game. Antonio came back. The, the effectiveness of a... Real, uh, real back in. The, real the, back the, in. the effectiveness of a striker was proved... I see our title back in. <laughs> the, the effectiveness of a striker was proven yet again as he scored really late in the day. Um, and, and, you know, West Ham are looking really good. They uh, obviously had a, a couple of bad results, but still looking very good, still looking very promising. I think I see them finishing very high. A team that aren't looking very good this still season. Still seven. Still seven. So, so you know, but for, for a moment there, they were having like that sort of Everton of last season moment where you were like, West Ham, top of the league, question mark. Um, I mean, they're only one win away from the top. They're only three points off Liverpool. I mean, there you go. But, but one team that isn't looking very good at the moment is Leeds. Um, and I wonder why that is, because they're a team that we've talked about a lot before, and they're a team that, you know, we, we like the look of. Is it is it a case just of them getting found out, do you reckon, Rupert? Or is there something else going on there? I I wonder if it's it's equal parts getting found out and then not really having a, a second idea. 
which I suppose one might say is, is, is one of the same thing. Yeah, well, it is, but also, you know, the, the second season syndrome is such a thing, as is third season syndrome, um, for, for, play, for teams coming up to the Premier League from the Championship. And, it. I mean, I just feel like they haven't really kicked off and, and got going yet. I think that they've got a lot more in them. I don't think it's going to suddenly be, you know, they've been found out and now everyone can beat them. I think they will have their day in the sun again. They just are struggling to control matches. And I don't know if it's because, you know, they, they've been missing the influence of... Um, who's there? Who's their holding midfielder that I can't think of off the top of my head? Um, Cam Phillips. Is it just that, you know, he needs to impose himself on more games? Um, is it that, you know, they, they, they're not quite using players like Dallas in the same way where he was so effective last year? Is it that Bamford hasn't really quite had an incredible run of form yet? Rafinha's not quite... I feel like it's it's a lot of... Rafinha's looked good so far, I think. And Rafinha and Bamford are the guys I was sort of thinking about maybe kicking on. Rafinha's obviously a lot younger, but Bamford's like 28 now, which is 27 or 28, which is sort of like prime years. But other than that, they just haven't made a lot of interesting signings. They've signed Dan James, who still juries out for me. That's a very weird signing. And then Junior Firpo, who, you know... Good, but a left back is not the signing that really changes how you play. And then just Jack Harrison, who or they already had. There's not a really exciting attacking signing. There's not a really exciting defensive signing to shore things up. And I think, yeah, maybe just the novelty and also sort of like the the marching powder that is getting promoted has maybe started to wear off. And as the humdrum of the Premier League becomes the humdrum of the Premier League rather than the, oh my God, we're in the Premier League, let's absolutely go every week. They are starting to fall to these results, like drawing 1-1 to Newcastle. Maybe... I um, don't quite know yet about Leeds. They're, they're, I'd say, one of the more surprising narratives so far this season. I definitely thought that they would have a little bit more fight in them so far, a little bit more spice. But, um, you know, I, I really don't think that this is going to be, by any means, the, the end of the road for them. I think they just need to, you know, work out what this new hill is and then overcome it. Buck up their idea. I certainly hope that when we go to watch them towards the back end of the season, when we go to Hell Road, uh, it's not a relocation scrap. Um, but that's a good little segue into our settling the score scores, uh, because that is, of course, why we'll be going to Ellen Road. Um, two big weeks of it, but bizarrely, despite there having been six game weeks, there is only one point that separates Rupert and I, with myself on 114 and Rupert on 115. And of course, this is your first time checking into this. This is a game where less points are better. So I, with 114, am winning. Um, you sure are. And we've How do had... you feel right now? Are you enjoying it, or are you? do you feel me breathing down your neck? It's, it's tough because, you know, one one point doesn't give me a lot of wiggle room. There's a part of me wants to enjoy it while I'm ahead because Lord knows next week you may well do it and, <laughs> and, and go ahead again. Uh, but there's also a part of me that is definitely looking over my shoulder. So no choice words today. No no choice words, <laughs> but, uh, but you know, some some, some, some interesting results. Um, some ones that we, we got bang on and some ones that we got well off, um, including... Uh, you know, the uh, the Chris Palace-Brighton game that I was happy to get exactly 1-1. And uh, you got Leeds-West Ham exactly right. So you must have been happy when that that equal, uh, sort of that game winner at the very end of the game went in. Yeah, it was nice. It was I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Um, but yeah, I mean, we were both wildly off with Brentford-Liverpool. Well, I, I wouldn't blame us for that. <laughs> that's true. Such is football. Um, yes, it is all very much still to play for. And the rest of the season to play it in. Um, looking ahead, any, any fixtures that you want to pick out? over the next you know game week that you think are going to be ones to watch out for good ones to watch particularly exciting uh next game week i think is one that is 
it, it, it's actually got quite a lot of annoying games in it. I'm saying this largely from a fancy football perspective. I remember looking at my team and going, ooh. Um, I think that Chelsea Southampton has all the hallmarks of, and watch Chelsea absolutely bash them here, but since Southampton have been good at defending so far, and I just see that not being an interesting game. Liverpool-Man City, I would love that to be a high-scoring game, but I also just don't see it being that exciting. I think maybe Man United-Everton is going to be the biggest game. Everton have been really good this season, but also not great at the back. And United have also been the same so if there's an exciting game maybe it'll be that one the first of the game week I mean I kind of feel like that's going to be a fun match to watch I would say apart from maybe Chelsea Southampton I could actually see every single fixture going any way this week and I think that's really rare I mean Man U Everton I feel like that's that that could Everton could pull out of the bag Bernie Norwich I've got no idea what to expect from that game Bernie's probably going to win um, Chelsea Southampton given Leeds Watford. Yeah, I mean, who knows at the moment? Who knows? Wolves Newcastle. Quite rogue. Probably Wolves. But Pro- yeah. Probably, but Newcastle are coming up. Brian Arsenal. Anyone's best yeah, guess. Again, who knows? Arsenal's best guess, really, I think. <laughs> yeah, which Arsenal um, will we see? Which Brighton will we see? You know, Palace Leicester could go either way. Spurs Villa. West Ham Brentford. And then Liverpool City, I feel like. Yeah, no, very, very, very true. A lot of games that, that we won't really know, but we will have to try and figure out. But probably a good note to end on there, Roops. Well, exactly. Lots to look forward to. And um, Cam, thank you very much. Rips, cheers as always, and thanks guys for listening. Bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron McDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amshill.